Do you ever feel like no one's listening to you? You ask someone to do something, it might be a friend or a relative or a handyman, electrician, plumber, you know, insert person here. You ask them once and they say yes. Yes, I'll do it. But then they don't. And a little while later, you ask them again. Oh, yeah, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it. And they don't. And you ask them again. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm on that, I'm on that. You can feel, can't it, like you're talking to thin air. Now, obviously, God experiences things like this differently. But if I could bring this down to our level for a moment, I could imagine God feeling like this in his dealings with the Israelites, and with us too. It must sometimes feel like he's talking to a brick wall, like he's talking to thin air. He keeps demonstrating his love and care and provision for his people. He keeps telling them that they're able to trust him. But it's like he's talking to thin air. And so he needs to keep teaching them the same lesson again and again and again. And still, it doesn't quite seem to get through. We see this all the way through his dealings with them. We said last time that C.H. Spurgeon said that the wilderness was Israel's school. Well, here is God teaching them the same lesson over and over and over again. But before we judge them, remember that we're not all that different, are we? How many times does God have to teach us the same lesson over and over again before we get it through our thick skulls and our hard hearts? So listen out this morning as God speaks to us from his words. The problem this morning is going to be slightly different from last week's problem, but Israel's response is going to be pretty much the same. So four shorter points this morning. The first one is back to square one, grumbling. Let me read to you verses one to three again. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out to this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, if you were here last week, you might get a bit of a feeling of deja vu. The Israelites are in the wilderness, a short amount of time after being rescued, probably about a month here. And the congregation are mumbling. This time it's not water, it's that they've not got enough food. And it's understandable, isn't it, in a way. You can understand it with things like water and things like food. These are things that you need. And again, like last week, they're in the middle of a desert. Things are not easy to get out there. There's no McDonald's or Greg's out there in the middle of the wilderness. There still aren't. I checked the nearest is Cairo uh, for you to get any uh, McDonald's out there. But it's almost like last week's passage hasn't happened. It's almost as though they haven't gone through this all before with the water. In fact, this time it seems like their grumbling is a bit more pointed. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of the Egyptians. How dramatic is that? We wish we were dead, Moses. We wish we'd never been rescued and that we died in Egypt. That's what they're saying. Oh, that we were back there, we sat around with the meat pots and the bread. Oh, and we were slaves in Egypt and we had our young ones murdered by them. But they seem to have forgot that last bit, don't they? 
They've got a very rose-tinted view of their life before they were saved at the Red Sea. They accused Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to starve them to death. In this scenario, in their heads, this has all been some sort of dramatic ruse to get them out into the middle of nowhere and then to starve them. That's what they think is going on. And it's not a particularly well thought through scenario to have gone through all that trouble to get them into the middle of nowhere. But that scenario stings. They want it to hurt if they throw it at Moses and Aaron. What they're really saying is you don't care about us. You're out to get us, you're out to hurt us. That's what they're accusing the leaders of. Food is the presenting issue, but the argument very quickly becomes, you're not on our side, Moses. It's less a question of malnutrition and more a questioning of their motives. They think that Moses and Aaron, who brought them out there, are actually there to hurt them. But these sort of things can never happen today, could they? We don't rose-tint our pre-conversion lives. We don't ascribe bad motives to our Christian leaders. Oh no, wait, those things do still happen, don't they? We can begin to look nostalgically on our lives before we came to Christ. It was so much easier then before we had all these moral issues and hang-ups. We could lie with impunity, we could gossip quite happily, we could flirt with whoever. We could have a line until midday on a Sunday. We could begin to think like the Israelites. Wouldn't it just be easier to go back? Life was so much simpler then, so much easier. But friends, it's a distortion. It's an illusion, just like theirs. Yes, some things were easier. But whatever we've lost is not worth comparing to what's ahead and what we've gained in Christ. The problem is that we live in the in-between of what we had before and what we will have in the future, like the Israelites. They're sort of stuck in the middle. Our past was not as good as we might start to imagine it, And also we need to remember that our future is way better than we could ever imagine. Our past was not as good and our future is even better. And that's the thing that we need to keep in mind when we start to have these distortions about where we are now. But we also fall into the other trap. We can begin to think the worst of our leaders in Christ. I have a pastor friend who just after he'd started at a church had a phone call from a church member to tell him this is virtually word for word, that he wished he died before he came to that church. They wished that he was dead before that person had taken over. Sounds very similar to what the Israelites were saying, doesn't it? Now actually, in that story with my pastor friend, there's a happy ending. But unfortunately, many other times there isn't, is there? <coughs> People ascribe the best motives to themselves and the worst motives to their leaders. Now that's not to say that leaders are above criticism or above question. We most definitely are not. But please think about how you could do that. The Israelites could have come to Moses, couldn't they, and said, Hi Moses, I know you're doing your best in a really difficult situation, but we seem to be lost in the wilderness with no food. Do you think that maybe we should have turned left at Elim rather than turning right? Should we have sent out a scouting party? Could we do that now to try and find some food that way? I think that would have been a lot better than what they actually come with, wouldn't it? They would still be wrong. Moses was on the right path. He was doing what God had said. But it would be a better way of going about it, wouldn't it be? Less hurtful than say, actually Moses, you just have to hurt us. You just brought us out here to die. 
Now, sadly, sometimes it's true that leaders do have bad motives. But can I say that shouldn't necessarily be the first thing that we jump to when things happen? Could it be that they've made a mistake, for example? We all do, after all. But Moses and Aaron see through what these people are saying. They know what's really happening here. (coughs) So second point, the real target, God. Let me read to you verses 6 to 10. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to your full, because the Lord he has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumble is not against us, but against the Lord. Moses and Aaron see their grumbling against them is really grumbling against the Lord. Moses and Aaron are well aware that they were not the ones who brought them into the wilderness. They did not appoint themselves leaders, God did. The whole thing was not their idea, it was God's idea. Now this is not always a defence for Christian leaders, but in this case it most definitely is. Moses and Aaron know that in the scheme of things, they are nothing. This is God's rescue mission. God is the one bringing this about. God is the one who brought them into the wilderness here. So when the people grumble that they're not being provided for, it's not Moses that they have a problem with. It's God. And this is one of the reasons why grumbling is so dangerous, why it's highlighted so much in Exodus. We can think that we're grumbling about one thing, when deep down we're grumbling about something else. Think about Adam in the garden. Who does he grumble about when he's called out about eating the fruit? Genesis 3.12. The man said to the woman, uh, sorry, the man said, the woman whom you have given to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Now it sounds at first, doesn't it, like he's grumbling about the woman, that he's blaming her. But if you look at it again, it's the woman whom you gave to be with me, whom you gave. Who is he blaming, really? Who is he grumbling against? God. Moses, they say, you brought us out into the wilderness to die. But it was God that brought them out into the wilderness. They're saying that God brought them there out to die. Moses, you've not provided for us. But were they really expecting Moses to actually provide the food himself? No. God was the one who would provide the food. So in fact, they were complaining about what God had done, or not done. But again, that could never happen today, could it? We couldn't do that. We don't complain about the circumstances in our lives. We don't complain about the things that we don't have, thinking that if we did have them, everything would be fine. Except we do, don't we? We complain about our finances. We complain about our family circumstances. We complain about our partners. We complain that we don't have partners. But we forget that behind all those things is a sovereign God. That there is one who places us in the circumstances that we're in. Who gives us what we have and also what we don't have. And that should temper our grumbling, our complaining, shouldn't it? Because behind it all is a God who is working for our good. Directing our situations and circumstances. 
When we grumble about how things are, we're implicitly grumbling against the God who made them or allowed them to be that way. And that is what the Israelites are doing. They're grumbling about the place God has brought them to. They're grumbling about the leaders God has given them. Now, God at this point would be fully within his rights to dump them, wouldn't he? Don't like it, don't trust me, fine. You want to go back to Egypt? Go back to Egypt. See how that does you. But he doesn't, does he? He graciously hears their grumbling and answers. The first way he answers it, he shows them his glory. He reminds them of the awesome God that he is, who it is that they're dealing with. Probably to help remind them that this is God that is doing this. And then our next point, he graciously provides for them. He gives them daily provision. Have a look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. God provides for them. He sends quail for them to eat in the evening and bread for them to eat in the morning. That repeated mention all the way through of morning and evening is there to remind us a bit of Genesis 1, where God filled the world abundantly just with the word of his mouth. God provides for his people. Quail apparently still frequent this region. They are a bit tired in the evening and they sort of try and hop and fly for a little bit, and it makes them really easy to catch, apparently. <coughs> the miracle here is the sheer numbers that it would take to feed the Israelites for any length of time. And also the timing that they appear in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. God is well able to harness the existing elements of nature to provide for his people. Just because it's sort of natural doesn't mean it isn't in its own way miraculous and part of God's provision. The manna, though, is something else. There have been numerous suggestions about what the manna could be down through the ages, from tree secretions to quail droppings. None of them perfectly, yeah, honestly, none of them perfectly match what we've got here. It's a flake-like thing, verse 14. It was white like coriander seed, verse 31. It tasted like wafers made with honey, also verse 31, and it melts in the sun, verse 21. Those things are, are pretty hard to match with something uh, in nature. But what happens afterwards, and what we're told elsewhere, makes it even harder. We're told that it rots if you leave it overnight, so it's got a very short shelf life. Unless you collect it on a Friday morning, in which case it won't. And on Fridays, there'll be twice as much of it as any other day of the week. And if you go out on a Saturday, there won't be any. Now those details make it impossible to match with anything in the natural world. 
This really has to be something special. Bread from heaven. It wasn't something natural, and it was readily available in the wilderness, in verses 33 and 34, which would make no sense then of what happens in verses 33 and 34, whether to keep it as a uh, memorial. Why would they keep a jar of it as a memorial if you could just nip out into the wilderness and get some more? The manna as well stops when they reach Canaan, when they cross over into the promised land. But if it was just available on the other side of the Jordan, then it would be nothing special, wouldn't it? Why would you keep it? They don't know what it is. We don't know exactly what it is. That's why it's called manna. It means, what is it? When I do this with the kids in assembly, I get a pack of what's it's. It's that sort of idea. We, we just don't know what it is. What we do know is that this was the answer to their prayer. This was the provision that God gave them in the wilderness. Their bread from heaven that would sustain them through their wanderings. And it was just the right sustenance. In verse 18 we're told, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. It's just the right amount for the people. <coughs> God knows how to provide. And all they had to do was trust God and trust him daily. God provided each day enough food for the day. I think it's great that we had the Lord's Prayer earlier in our daily bread. It's picking up on that idea. The next day they had to trust that he would send some more. That's why they just collected what they needed for the day. So there was no hoarding, no sticking it in the freezer for a day when God might not send it. It was their daily bread. They had to trust that as God had provided today, so he would provide tomorrow. The only exception was Friday, when twice as much would be given to get them through the Sabbath, when none would appear. But even then, they had to trust God, didn't they? They had to trust that he would do what he said he would do. And collect twice as much that day. But it's not like those sorts of things happen today. God providing for his people, is it? Of course it is. And God still wants us to trust him daily. Becoming a Christian is when we start putting our trust in God. But that carries on day by day as we go forward. It's about trusting what Christ has done every day. It's about trusting in God's provision for today and tomorrow. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we do, did earlier, we pray for God's provision for that day. And we do so trusting that he will do the same the next day. God wants us to trust him for the future as well as for the moment. Now that doesn't mean it's ungodly to have a savings account. That doesn't mean we can't make provision for ourselves or what's ahead. But we trust God in those things. We don't trust in the things themselves, we trust in God. God gives us what we need for each day. And tomorrow is in his hands as much as today is. He is faithful for today and tomorrow. Mm. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. So he is a God that we can trust with our tomorrows. Unfortunately, this is not the result for the Israelites. And so our last point, they're still not trusting in God. Let me read to you from verse 19. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left parts of it until the morning, and it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. 
Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could, to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omens. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, they said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is to be a solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside until morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. And Moses said, Eat it for today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on six days, uh, sorry, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. You'd hope that the story ends well, wouldn't you? That they doubted God, but God showed his provision for them, and then they trusted in him from that point. Unfortunately, that is not the way it goes. They didn't trust him when they didn't have any food, and they still don't trust him now that they do. Because the problem was never the lack of bread, it was the lack of trust. The Lord said in verse 4 that this was a test for Israel, to see whether they would do as he had commanded, whether they would listen to his voice. Well, if this is a test, then they fail. Not all of them, but certainly a good chunk of them. Just after we're told that each person had the right amount for each day, we discover in the very next verse that some people then tried to hoard some for the day after, that it bred worms and stank. They're also told that there'll be no manner on the Saturday morning, that they're to rest and to not go looking for it. But again, just a few verses later, they go and they look anyway. And God's conclusion is there in verses 28 to 29. He's given them his rules, he's laid it down, but they don't obey. The Lord had given them the Sabbath, it's supposed to be a gift to them. It's supposed to be a day off for them. All they have to do is trust him and do as he says. Now in verse 30, eventually they do rest on the Sabbath. But to be honest, I wonder how much of that is that there's just nothing to be found on that day. If it was there, they'd probably still be out looking for it. We'll touch on the Sabbath a bit more in a few weeks' time when we, we do the Ten Commandments. But the problem really is the same as the one that we started with. They don't trust God. They think he's there to do them in. They don't really think that he will provide. They think he'll let them down, or worse, that this is some sort of perverse trick to destroy them. They'd rather trust in their own ability to provide. They'd rather try and make their own stockpiles of manna, rather than trusting that God will provide again tomorrow. But that could never happen with God's people today, could it? Yes, it can. We can still fail to trust in God's provision for us. This is true in life in general, isn't it? We can plan for our future as if there's no God there providing for us. We can doubt that despite the fact that God has provided in the past, that he'll provide for us in the future. As though God has no track record for providing for his people. But we can also fail to trust in God's provision for our salvation. We can grumble about what God has given us for our rescue. 
If you want a bit of deja vu, here's a bit more. This is Jesus feeding the 5,000. I'll put it up on the screen because it's a bit of a longer reading. John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not labour for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he said to them, Then what is the sign? Now what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Do you see there the, the pattern? The same thing is going on. Here, God has provided. Jesus is our manna, our bread from heaven. It's he who sustains us. He is our provision for our rescue. So look at the people here. They grumble. They'd rather have full stomachs than saved souls. They'd rather have croutons than Christ. They don't want the provision that God has given them. But again, we can be the same, can't we? We can start to not trust in what God has provided for our forgiveness and start to put our trust in other things. Maybe that might be that we start to try and punish ourselves for our sin, either mentally or physically sometimes. Perhaps we can try and do good works, hoping they'll somehow tip the balance. Perhaps we can look to religiosity, coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, as though that somehow earns us into God's good books and gets us forgiveness. But Christ, and Christ alone, is God's provision for our salvation. He alone is the bringer of forgiveness. He alone is the one in whom we are to trust. When we look for other things, we're like the Israelites on the hunt for manna that isn't there. He alone is the bread from heaven. And when we look to him, when we believe in him, we feast on him by faith. So are you feasting on Christ for your forgiveness? Or are you looking somewhere else? Are you trusting in him alone? Or are you hedging your bets with other things? God has provided everything that we need. All that we need in Christ for our salvation. Are you content with Christ? Or are you beginning to grumble and look to other things? God is reminding us he has given us all that we need. So let's not be brick walls like the Israelites. Let's not be deaf ears or thin air to God. 
He's given us Christ and wants us to look to him. So let's do that. Let's listen to what God says. Let's turn to Christ and trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that our Lord Jesus is our bread from heaven. Father, help us not to grumble as the Israelites did, but Father, help us to be content with what you have given us. Father, we pray that for our lives as well. Father, we know that you direct all circumstances. So Father, in the circumstances that we're in, help us not to grumble, but to look for your guiding hand, to look for your provision and providence in those places. And Father, pray that we might keep feasting on our Lord Jesus, the bread from heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.